Welcome to the Rehope Podcast. Before we dive into this week's message, we'd like to provide you with some helpful resources. If you'd like someone to pray for you, it would be our joy to connect with you. So please email us at prayer at rehope.co.uk. If you'd like to get connected with an online Bible read-through group from wherever you are in the world, you can email brt at rehope.co.uk and be a part of a small group of people reading through the Bible cover to cover each year. Finally, if you would like to support the work and ministry of Rehope financially, you can do so online at rehope.co.uk slash giving. We pray you find this message encouraging, enlightening, and helpful. Enjoy. Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. So nice to see you. Um, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Crooksy. I'm one of the lead pastors at Rehope. I'm usually up in the south side, but it's a real treat. Real treat for me to be with you this evening. Uh, Let me start by blessing you. I bless you in the name of Jesus to know Jesus even more wonderfully today. And I bless you to receive healing in your body and in your mind and your spirit and in your emotions. I bless you to receive guidance and help from God um, so you can flourish in this season, no matter what challenges that you find yourself facing so that you might prevail. And I bless you to experience the love and joy and hope and peace of God today. May it be. All right, yo, get this. It's the Sunday before Passover, and the most polarizing rabbi is parading across the valley into Jerusalem and through its streets. Too great fanfare, I might add, but not even just a little bit of resistance a mixed response, to be sure. And I suppose that sounds just about right. For Jesus, you're either going to king him or you're going to kill him. Those are the options presented on that first Palm Sunday. Um, Palm Sunday deserves a rewind, and we're going to be looking at the events that lead up to it, um, mainly focusing from Luke's gospel. So uh, let's read that together. The words are going to be up on the screen as I read. Um, It's from Luke chapter 19. It goes like this. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at a place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, say this, the Lord needs it. So... Those who were sent left and found it, just like he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, "Um, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. And they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on. As he was going, they're spreading their clothes on the road. And now they came near the path down the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the rocks would cry out. Yo, Palm Sunday, like that event kind of stands out, doesn't it? Like we are used to Jesus doing things and not drawing too much attention 
to himself. Um, up on the screen, there are going to be some examples of that, and I've chosen one from each gospel because they're all over the place. Why not? And if you look at these examples, feels like we could find ourselves being drawn into thinking that this is the only way that Jesus operates. This kind of like, shh, don't tell anyone I did this. Or like, wow, did you see that thing that Jesus did? Hey, where'd he go? Like, sometimes we kind of get the sense that this is the way that Jesus works. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. Like, he's so self-unassuming that he's almost transparent. And sure, there are things that work this way, but there are also times when Jesus commands people, like, go and tell everyone what happened to you. And there are times when he tells people not to tell anyone, and then they just go ahead and do it anyway. And we're kind of left with the impression that Jesus is really famous but he doesn't want to be famous. It's like he's uncomfortable with it, and it's, we almost might end up thinking it's like he's riding through Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, being like, yo, you guys, like, can you? Like, you know they're already trying to kill me, don't you? Like, can we just, like, take it down a level up in here? Stop it. But that's not it. That's not Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is go and take someone else's donkey, and if they try and stop you, name drop me, and everything will be fine. Palm Sunday is my donkey is going to step on your clothes, and you're going to be cool with it. In fact, it's going to be your idea. Palm Sunday is dudes going buck wild in the street. Palm Sunday is when people come to tell you, this is a bit inappropriate, you tell them to back off. And Palm Sunday is maintaining this for the entirety of the full journey. Um, here's a little map for us, since I'm trying to be more Brian. And um, you can see that the journey starts off on the right-hand side there, up near a village called Bethany. And then they go down through the Kidron Valley, that's a little green zone, and then up into Jerusalem. And it starts up, and then it goes down, and then it comes back up the other side. And that's very interesting for us. I'm sure you know. We'll tuck that away for later. Journey is about five, five and a half miles. And if you're walking or if you're donkeying, maybe take you about two hours. Dudes aren't just going wild for a moment, and then it dies down. This is a long, extended period of praising God. And I'm sure this isn't the exact route that they took. This is the route. If they were to take 2023, Google Maps says you should go this way. I'm sure Brian knows the actual route. I'm sure he has a map for that. The master is the master. I'm only trying. Give me a break. Anyway, that being said, Palm Sunday, like it sticks out at least in our perception, as like maybe being like a little bit out of character for Jesus. Sometimes it hits me like that, do you know? And I know that that's kind of dumb because Jesus being king is absolutely a real life thing. But also, I want to give myself a little bit of a break. Kind of find it understandable that I would think Jesus normally operates in a self-unassuming way, so Palm Sunday stands out. And um, when we think about like that list of stuff that we had up a moment ago, I can see why I might think that. And when we look at the build-up to Palm Sunday, I can definitely see why I might think that. And I have prepared for you a little list of key events from Luke 18, and 19 that will appear up on the screen as well. There are other things that go on in those chapters, but I've picked out these key events because I think using these key events, Luke is building something. So there's a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and that's followed up by a story, like a real life event, where the protagonist is 
a Pharisee, and then you've got a story about someone who is the absolute opposite of him in one way, then you've got a story about someone who's the absolute opposite of him in a different way, and then you've got Palm Sunday. And Luke is doing this thing where he is setting up a direct comparison between the Pharisees as the top of like the society, the really respected ones, and like a blind person and a tax collector representing the bottom of society and kind of like everyone in between. You've got the religious power elite and you've got everybody else. And Luke is setting up his comparison. And that's the two groups that we see displaying like very distinctly opposite reactions on Palm Sunday. And Luke adds in a bunch of really interesting stuff here. Like there's the money factor, tax collectors are greedy and steal, but Pharisees give a tenth of all that they get. And then there's the power factor. Do you know, like the Pharisees definitely have influence in society and they get that because they're well-respected, because they are more godly than everybody else, at least in society's eyes. But the tax collectors, they get their authority because they work for the Romans. Gross. And interestingly, all of this money and Romans and where you get your authority from, all of that stuff Luke is going to revisit after the Palm Sunday event, which is very juicy. And Luke is a very good writer and I really appreciate him. But I think there's something that ties this all together and that's the pride factor. So we're going to see uh, today if we can trace the theme of pride through all of these events to see if we can come to a conclusion as to why the two different groups respond to Jesus on Palm Sunday the way that they did. And we're going to spend a little extra time in the Pharisee versus tax collector prayer compare parable um, because it's got something important for the rest of the section. We might as well read it. Um, it says, he also told this parable to some who trusted it in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Okay, here we go. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee was standing praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterous, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get. But tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I'll tell you what, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me say that one more time for you. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you start at the top, and then you go down, then you come up the other side. Hmm, interesting, we'll talk that way for later. Um, this is going to be our test. Um, the parable sets the scene, and there is a Pharisee who is so proud that he looks down on everyone. He's blind to his own sin, but not everyone else's. He's full of himself and all of the good things that he does. And see how he establishes those two groups. He says, I'm glad I'm not like the other people. There's those two groups 
established. Meanwhile, the tax collector is so self-deprecating in comparison. Or maybe he's just more self-aware. Um, his body language, his words, his physical distance all speak humility. But it's a tax collector at the conclusion of the parable who is held up and exalted as the positive example. And the Pharisee is used as a negative example. And that's very surprising, especially given who Jesus' audience was. Like, is he telling this parable to people who are humbled and beaten down and need a bit of a lift and a bit of an encouragement? Like, not at all. Look at that first verse. He's talking to Pharisees and people with a similar attitude to them. He's saying this right to a dude's face. And I have got to respond to him because Jesus is kind of going after them. And how are they going to respond? Well, they respond in the next story. In this real-life event, not a parable, a real-life event, they respond with more pride. This rich, young ruler guy comes, and he reinforces Jesus' point from the parable by going on about all the good boy things that he has done for his whole life. But then when it comes to humbling himself, and Jesus invites him to humble himself financially, and like, yes, it's financially, but it represents putting other people before him, putting himself down, putting others up, and he's just not willing to do it, even though he knew Jesus was right. We can tell from his reaction that he knew Jesus was right. He was sad. He wasn't angry. He didn't react with indignation or scorn. It wasn't like, Jesus, how dare you say that? Or Jesus, like, you are miles away on this, mate. Like, you are so far off, you have no idea. No. It was sadness because he knew that Jesus was right. And for the first time in his life, he realized that there were things that he wouldn't be willing to do for God. And it crushed him and he went away sad. It was a too big of a price to pay. And to be fair, the other people who were there were also shocked by Jesus' teaching. Like Jesus is making it sound like Pharisees can't be saved. And if they can't be saved, then who? I mean, for goodness sake, it's the Pharisees. They're respected. They're a higher level in society. They're the ruling class. Well, I mean, they probably get to do a little bit more ruling if it wasn't for those pesky Romans. But still, a Pharisee can't make it? <coughs> who then can be saved is their question. Seems impossible. A rich person can't make it? Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a literal needle than a rich person get into heaven? This Jesus stuff is sounding impossible. Impossible for people, not impossible for God, is Jesus' point. But for this young ruler, it certainly seems impossible right now. It is not looking good for the Pharisees so far in our case studies. But what about someone who's the complete opposite of a Pharisee? What about the complete opposite of this rich young ruler? What about a man who has no sight, who needs to resort to begging and like lives at the mercy of other people's kindness to survive? What about him? What does he do? Well, I guess he doesn't need to humble himself. He's already humbled. Like He lives his life as humbled. But notice how he uses the same initial request as a tax collector in the parable. He says, have mercy on me. And Jesus does. He receives his sight. He glorifies God. He follows Jesus. And as a result, other people do as well. He is exalted, like physically lifted from the ground, not just like exalted as like a good person in this story. He is exalted. And we're starting to get the picture here in our case studies that humble is good and pride is bad. 
And people who are proud and unwilling to humble themselves are going to have a pretty impossible time fitting in with the kingdom of heaven. But humbled people fit right in. But is it a money thing, though? Because so far we've seen like a poor person like fare pretty well, and we've seen a rich person feel pretty bad. Is money the defining factor here? Well, Luke shows us that money, in fact, is not the defining factor, since Zacchaeus comes as the example of an impossible, like the impossible rich person who makes it into the kingdom of heaven. Zacchaeus makes it through the eye of that needle. And one of the first things we learn about him is that he is rich, and he's a tax collector. And we know from the parable what society, especially the Pharisees, think about tax collectors. And you know, Zacchaeus' reputation goes before him. He's identified by the people in the story as a sinful person. But he welcomes Jesus joyfully, the complete opposite of the rich young ruler's sadness. And he gives his money away to the poor and to anyone who he has extorted, the opposite of the rich young ruler. He was willing to do it, whereas that other guy wasn't. So we can tell from this that pride isn't an unassailable enemy. It can be conquered. I mean, remember what Jesus said? Like, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Meaning that at some point, you're going to have to be at a point of not humble and then go down and be humble. So you might come up the other side. Oh, hey, look at that. Going down and then come back up again. Very interesting. We'll hold that on for later. At some point, you're going to have to adopt a new mindset of being humbled. And it for sure sounds like, from Jesus' words and from what we see Zacchaeus doing, that choosing to do that to yourself, choosing to humble yourself, is the key in defeating pride. So money might not be the defining factor here, but it's definitely a factor in this section. And a very practical way of choosing to humble yourself is by putting others before you and making humble like other people benefiting decisions with your finances. And um, as we've been reading through the major prophets in this loop of Bible read-through, something that I keep noticing are all of the prophetic acts that go along with what God is speaking to the people and the leaders through the prophets. The prophets go out and do something that encapsulates what God is saying. And sometimes we can do a simple yet powerful thing that acts as a prophetic act that helps bring breakthrough in bigger ways. So sometimes when we do things like making simple, powerful, like self-sacrificial, other people benefiting, humble decisions with our finances, we can see breakthrough in other areas of our lives more generally where pride has crept in. Because what we do counts. It does. And a lot of the time, I think we don't give it enough credit for how much it counts. So, great. Case studies done. Conclusion time. Humility is good and pride is bad. Repeatedly teaches Jesus and then parades through the streets while everybody sings his name. Okay, cool. Palm Sunday stands out, doesn't it? Like this section is like humility, 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 humility. Palm Sunday. And you're like, okay, cool. This stands out. It really does. It stands out as one of the unique moments in Jesus' ministry when he is receiving at least some of the recognition that he deserves. And he's cool with it. He's not embarrassed by it. 
Palm Sunday is not the time for, shh, don't tell anyone because I'm just going to sneak out of here real quick before anybody notices. Palm Sunday is a time for recognition. Palm Sunday is the time when the people cry out en masse, Hosanna, save us, save us now. Because the people, and we can see this coming, they are ready to humble themselves and exalt Jesus and recognize Jesus is king. He can save them and they need him. They're going to put their jackets down on the street and they're going to get them covered in hoof prints and they're going to love it. Jesus comes first for them. At least at that part of that week. The Pharisees, however, they're not ready uh, to humble themselves. In fact, they still want to sit in authority over Jesus. They're going to try and tell him what to do. They're going to try and tell him that they should, he should keep his disciples quiet. This is inappropriate. And they still want to boss him around. They are not ready to put Jesus up and humble themselves. And I guess we could kind of see that coming too from uh, the case that Luke has been making. These reactions have been a long time coming. But the Pharisees get shot down and um, this because this is time this is time for recognizing who jesus is feels like an exaltation moment for him definitely does feels like it would be a proud moment for jesus but so often we think of jesus as being like the complete opposite of proud so does jesus get to be proud and it just be okay we can't think of pride as being like not a good thing does jesus get to be proud and it be okay i mean I could get it if he was. I mean, a few weeks ago when Brian was starting our series on Ephesians 6, he recommended that we spend some extra time that week in the book of Isaiah. That was the book we were reading for Bible Read Through that week. And when Brian recommends something, I tend to pay attention and do it. So I did do it. And I spent some extra time, and I particularly found myself that week reading every day. I read Isaiah chapter 40 through to chapter 41, verse 4. And um, the God that it reveals is class. Like, he's so good. And I love him. He's just boss over everything. And he's wonderful. And he's powerful. And he's kind. And he is not here to be messed around with. He's awesome. And if there's anybody who gets to be proud, it's God. And if there's anybody who gets to be proud of who he is and what he does, it's God. And Jesus is God. So if Jesus is feeling like he is proud on Palm Sunday, I can totally get that in some ways. I mean, I get that Jesus gets to be proud of who he is and what he's done and what he's about to do. And it'd be okay, like even more actually, for that to be good. If there's anyone who can do pride rightly, it's God. But I just can't relate, you know, I just can't get my head into how he would do that. I can't get my heart into how he would experience that moment, you know, to ride into Jerusalem, to your city, with your temple, the place where your name dwells, to ride in and have your people all in there, and this uproar, and this commotion, and this sudden citywide outpouring of joy and hope. And I can't imagine what it would have been like to have lived Jesus' life and then finally, finally get at least some 
of the recognition that you deserve as their genuine king and king in a far better way than they even realize all the while knowing that in five days they'll have turned on you they'll have arrested you they'll have tried you in an absolute farce and they'll have killed you what's it like to experience that moment how is jesus feeling in that moment as he feels exalted knowing what is going to happen I don't know if pride is the emotion that Jesus is going to be feeling on Palm Sunday, in that moment at least, I don't know, but we don't have to speculate. Luke tells us, it says, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? Now it's hidden for your eyes, for the days will come on you and your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in every side. And they will crush you and your children, and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Here's our test. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus did both of those things in the space of a week. This uniquely wonderful, merciful, saving, justice-delivering, mighty, and merciful, powerful God gets a slither of the recognition that he deserves. Like he exalts himself in that moment, sure. But he gets humbled. He humbles himself and oh boy, does he humble himself, choosing for himself to become obedient to death. And I don't need to tell you that Jesus is miles above death. Like Jesus' authority is miles above death and the one who breathes life into everything makes himself obedient to death and even to death on a cross <sighs> but for that reason the father exalts him and gives him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted and that happened and we need to respond to it. We need to respond to it by recognizing Jesus as king and getting excited about it. And we need to recognize that by laying aside our pride, whatever that looks like for us. And maybe like from the examples that Luke gave, there's like a financial link with that. Maybe there's like a power, influence, authority link with that. Or maybe it's like an identity, like, I don't know, like something in your profession or like maybe like a talent or achievements thing could be 
could be anything. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't know, but you, you, you'll probably know what your thing is. And God is calling you to lay it down. And probably lay it down in the same way that Zacchaeus did. And that was that he started to use his thing for the benefit of other people. God's calling you to lay it down. Come to him joyfully. Come to your king joyfully. And recognize the time that God visits with you. I've got a challenge for you um, this week. Maybe something that you could do in your 24-7 prayer time. Because I know you've all signed up for one of those. Very exciting. Here's something for you to do. Um, You can ask God to search your heart. And show you where, if any, um, there is any pride that has gotten a grip on you. And I want you to plan and do no point in planning it if you don't do it plan and do a simple prophetic act to break the hold that pride has on you like in that specific area and i want you to like think when you do this i am choosing to do this thing to humble myself in this area so that pride will be broken and won't have a hold on me anymore so that i can come joyfully to jesus my king Make it a very practical thing that you can do and you can remember if you can record it some way. That's amazing. So that you can come back to it and think, yep, I did that. I know for certain that pride is broken. Make it a very practical thing. Go out there this week and do something that's going to get some dirty hoof prints on your jacket. Friends, we are going to move into a time of response in just a moment. But before we do, I'd I'd love to pray for us. Jesus, you're unbelievably good. You're so good, everything about you is good. And we heal you and we proclaim you as our king on your throne where you deserve. And we love you. We love you, we love you, we love you. God, come and be with us. We want to recognize how you visit with us. We want to appreciate that. God, fill us With joy, remove any pride that is in our hearts so that we can hold you up and proclaim you as the wonderful, uniquely great God that you are. And that we get to be your people. You're too good to us. Your great love. Wow. We bless you, we adore you, and we say thank you. Amen.